Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Tenakoto Katoa, welcome to Circuit Cast. In this month's two part pod, a panel discuss Gavin Hipkins' feature length film Erewhon. Also in the pod, we get on the blower to Kim Patton, curator at Hamilton's Ramp Gallery, to talk about the success of the recent Spark Festival of New Media Arts and Design. We cocked up the beginning, so you, I'm doing it again by phone. <laughs> Well, welcoming to our warm palatial penthouse, <laughs> our critical panel this month with us on the pod are Thomas and Slay and Martin Patrick. Kia ora kōrua to you both. Hi. First of all, I think we'd better give some context for the listeners. Gavin Hipkins' film is a self-described experimental adaptation of Samuel Butler's 1872 Erewhon, or Over the Range, uh, and it pairs spoken extracts from the book to what I'd describe as a veritable compendium of Hipkins' exquisite moving and still images. And in the film and the book, we follow the narrator's journey across a mountain range to the interior in a surreal encounter with the fictional Erewhonian people, where amongst other dark oddities, machines have been banned for fear of them developing consciousness. Well, at 90 minutes, it's a proper full-length feature film. So I was rather interested to start off with, guys, as to how you found that 90 minutes. I'm really pleased you asked that because the whole time I was watching the work, I kept thinking about how it was quite a different cultural experience to one that I've had really before as a viewer of, of art. Having So having the work provided like via a link and we were able to kind of uh, watch it from our own homes, I just kept thinking this is this is very different to a, any way that I've sort of experienced art slash, you know, an art film. I watched it on the couch first and then kind of, like you were saying, Mark, I kind of re-watched again parts of it while I was doing the ironing last night. <laughs> so, it's not the experience uh, most of our listeners are going to be having with this film, yeah, I have to yeah. say. I did actually regret the fact that I hadn't gone to see it at the festival because having it at that size would have been really quite an exquisite experience, I think. What about you, Martin? It's a pretty remarkable film. One thing that was brought to mind, partly because my primary experience with Gavin's work until recently was in still photography, though I've seen some of his shorter films uh, that led up to the making and production of Erewhon. I'm interested in what makes a photographer's film in the sense that are films made by photographers significantly different than ones that might be made by someone whose background is particularly in the moving image. And one thing I noticed in the film, for example, there's a real strong emphasis on surface rather than depth at times. And there are a lot of shots that are held for a long time such that you're, until you see wind blowing or you see certain traces of movement, you're not quite sure if there is still image or not. There's a kind of curious stasis which goes contrary to a kind of montage that really propels it along with the narration. But there's very little panning, zooming, or tracking the devices that we kind of associate with narrative films. And then an extremely close attention to the edges and the composition and the framing as uh, in photographic terms. So Similar to his still image work. Yes, yeah. 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 And then he's also done a lot of uh, manipulated still photography, and, and that kind of comes to the fore a little bit more as you progress through the film. Mm. I was interested that the text that is done by voiceover is very rich. The imagery is very, very rich. Several people I've spoken to have said they felt almost the need to close their eyes and just listen to the narration at times. Mm, I didn't really feel that way at all, actually. There's been sort of described as being kind of meditative in some things that I read, but I actually found it really compelling. And like Martin was saying, something to do with that very careful 
editing. It had a relatively quick pace in that way and I didn't find that I needed to have, you know, one thing without the other, the image or the text separate from each other. But yeah, the editing was incredibly, like, amazing. Like, just imagine having that amount of imagery in your head as, you know, the creator and being able to splice it and connect it in those very clever ways that he did with the text. And something that I was really impressed with as well was there were very distinct sections that related to particular topics and then those kind of abstract relationships with the images. But I was really interested in the segues, actually, that he made in between those. A couple of times he just shows the back, that very small section of an aeroplane, flying and mm, I just thought image, it's yeah. such a great image and it was just yeah those the kind of connecting sections I was really mm. um, impressed with. I felt like a composer he was able to do the micro and the macro you yeah. can almost see him at his computer zooming out and being able to see where he put those fuse, fuselage in and, and get you know have that have that great joy I guess as a photographer of structuring something which had a different kind of well, wasn't necessarily linear but as he says was still a journey Well, it's a deceptively, I think, very seductive film because at first the imagery is, I mean, no disrespect in this, almost seems like you're plunging into a kind of characteristic representation of New Zealand landscape, a la maybe even Craig Potton kind of imagery. Mm -hmm. And then it goes, gets progressively more David Lynchian or Gavin Hipkinsian. He really plays a lot with the images that it, it's not an overtly humorous film in any way it's actually a quite dark film but there's a kind of satirical and ironic playfulness that is partly derived from butler's text which is read so ably by you know, the Mia actress Blake. yeah Mia, Mia Blake, Mia Blake yes. the actress and there's a playfulness also in the fact that you have in, in a sense a kind of gender bending because in the in the original novel of which I've read parts of but haven't read read through uh, the whole thing and I think it's a, a book more referred to than probably read these days but you have a male protagonist and then so to shift this and to sort of and her voice is so uh, great at luring you in to the scene so that you're kind of following along and kind of wondering what's going to happen next. And it seems at times almost like a photo essay uh, more than a narrative film. It's interesting because he's used the female voice, I think, in many of his other films. And Mm -hmm. it is an interesting kind of reversal. Did you have any feelings about that, Thomason, how the narration works? Sometimes there's a layering, isn't there? It's like she refers to the writer at certain stages as well. So I was kind of interested in that distance that she creates. So there's kind of a strata of different narratives or kind of narrators within it. I think that's coming from the book in, in the, which there there are a lot of uh, Butler as a, or the narrator of Erewhon is quoting throughout the text other people because I was noticing that and going back to them and trying to figure out to the text and one thing really about the play of of the film is which parts of the text are selected it's a very lengthy book with many sections but one of the primary sections that Gavin's chosen to use within the film deals with relations between man and machine. There's a kind of suspicion towards machines, and in the in the novel, a culture of almost feeling that the the machines will control things as uh, their animate forces might be released unless they're banished and destroyed. It's kind of akin to the the sort of narratives of Orwell or Jonathan Swift. Or, yeah, well, Orwell was inspired, I think, yeah. by this book quite a bit. Yes, yeah. yeah. Could I pick up, Martin, just on that? I'm really interested in talking a little bit about the contemporary effect of the work. So Hipkins himself has said that he felt that Butler's meditations on this industrial 
Victorian period and this period of colonial expansion that he feels that they're really timely in terms of our technological dependency. I wondered whether you thought that was that was true. Yeah. Primary concern to me this idea. I mean, that seems so timely of of privacy um, and the fact that you know so much of our information now these days is controlled by machines and these big sort of data sets. That would be the most prevalent thing for me to think about. I mean, it was re- sort of referring to machines in a very sort of broad sense, so nothing as specific as that. But I actually think. Most of the time when it talked about that, it had these, like you were saying, these sort of very satiric um, moments where the machines, they were either kind of broken or acting in a kind of repetitive or kind of slightly maudlin sort of fashion. So there was a really interesting undercut of the imagery to the text in that sense where it seemed to be suggesting that this might be a concern, but then there would just be an image of a broken down car. Both the text and the film refer a lot to the enslavement of men to machines and vice versa. And there was a passage that really struck me on the second viewing of one portion of which you're speaking where, and I wrote it down because I wanted to be able to go back to it. It says, how many men at this hour are living in a state of bondage to the machines? How many spend their whole lives from the cradle to the grave intending them night and day? Is it not plain that the machines are gaining ground upon us when we reflect that the increasing number of those who are bound to them as slaves and those who devote their whole souls to the advancement of the mechanical kingdom. Now, if we replace sort of mechanical with uh, social networking or any kinds of uh, feeling that, you know, we're (laughs) 24-7 enslaved or burdened in some ways by the effects of technology today, I can see where there's some analogous things being made there. As someone who's seen a lot of Hipkin's past series of photographic works, I was kind of fascinated by how much he was... I guess almost recycling mm. um, previous ideas of uh, in, interests that he's got. You, you, you know, almost so much. There were so many connections there across. Almost like this was a survey. Almost like if he had like a deck of playing mm. cards of what was it he was interested in. He was sort of shuffling them. All these motifs that have come up before, and I, I was kind of trying to work out whether this was a weakness or a strength, because it seemed almost to me like this whole film was a chance for him to kind of look at his whole entire photographic practice and work out what it means to yeah. him. And why shouldn't he do that? I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a great thing. I, I actually have this very distinct memory of, this is going to show what generation I'm from, but I was so sixth form, I was like 16 or something. My art history teacher took me to, we went to the Waikato Museum of Art and History, and there was a Gavin Hipkins exhibition there called The Stall, which I had this very clear memory of. And it was strips of images kind of hung, hung down from the ceiling of the gallery, and with these images, just one after the other, very small, like a film strip. And there, it was exactly as you say, Mark, like, it was all of these images were very similar to some of the ones that I now have seen in this film. And mm. for me, it just seemed such a great and logical and interesting progression. I loved it. It was so yeah. overt. He sort of seemed it was like revisiting his past and bringing it all together and, yeah. and kind of realising that all his work is in a sense about the same thing. And he was a book that kind of he felt he had an affinity with through his But practice. I think moreover, it's also that he doesn't just make some itinerary through his own work, but I think more broadly maybe the history of photography because uh, maybe okay. it's my eyes yeah. as someone who is really fascinated uh, with the history of 20th century photography, for example. Like he has a beautiful, striking image of a dead sheep with flies 
crawling upon it. And it reminds me of some photographs of the photographer Frederick Summer of, <laughs> of dead animals. Or, I thought of uh, Peter Purr, yeah. Or it makes me think also of kind of uh, landscape photography of the early 20th century or maybe the kind of vernacular art photography of someone like William Eggleston and his use of color in the 1970s and 80s. And as the film progresses, there's a lot more use of negative imagery, solarization, highly saturated color, this kind of almost psychedelic style abstraction at times uh, from reality. And I think those are all things that are hinted at in some of Gavin's other If projects. I'm to be honest, I find quite a lot of that a little indulgent. I question whether the film could be stronger, tighter, and, you know, without quite so many of those effects. But, but I thought the sort of pace of it, the kind of almost languid pace at times, but the narration is really, it almost lulls you into false security, right? Because you're listening to it, and at times I was thinking, I'm really enjoying hearing this narration and not quite hearing what it's saying. And and then I'd have to go back yeah. and listen to it again. And I think it's sort of similar to, as I was saying about the imagery, that the imagery kind of gets a little bit darker and stranger. And then one thing to note is that Erewhon is kind of an anagram of, of the word nowhere. Even though the South Island is it was an inspiration for Butler the novelist, and of course is where some of the shooting was done for, for Gavin's film, he also traveled to India, he traveled to Australia, and he incorporated some of that footage into the film also. So there's a kind of response to, to the kind of global movement of artists and the kind of uh, uh, voluntary moving about and placelessness, I think, in it mm-hmm. as well. It's it's not all New Zealand, and it's certainly not all Canterbury, for example. It's nowhere. Mm. <laughs> there was a nice thing uh, that happened. I saw the other day, or it was a little while ago, there was a um, magazine that had a picture of Lord on the front. Uh, the subtitle on it was, Lord, she's just come out of nowhere or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, um, your journalists do know about the rest of the world, right? Image-wise, I wanted to say there are very few people in the film. There is a certain coolness, too. I mean, he doesn't do a lot of, I don't know, what I call her faith, hope, love and charity as a, as, mm. as a photographer or filmmaker here. It's quite Victorian, even in that way. It's... Uh, Unless the film is being made by a machine. I I don't know. (laughs) But I think it's important to note that Gavin's background as having studied abroad, for example, in Vancouver with photographers um, that were very interested in a kind of conceptualist bent towards uh, photography, but also influenced by film. So in a way, he's kind of coming circle from influence of conceptualist photographers responding to film to being a photographer himself making a film. And I I mean, I saw echoes of, for example, an American... uh, uh, experimental filmmaker, and I'm not sure whether Gavin's was was referring to him directly, but James Benning, who's for example has has a film that's just all skies, you know, and the use of the sky, clouds, various cycling motifs out of nature are very very interesting. The way Gavin's presented them in the film, mm. but we're used with full, full length feature films. We expect the person to be, mm-hmm. you know, right there at the centre, and this 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 film almost rejects Mm. that. I had the same question actually, Mark, and I sort of thought the end, you know, the very last shot is of a child or a young person on the on the motorbike with the water. I kind of felt like maybe that was a suggestion of sort of move because there had been no people and then there's suddenly this person in the very last shot. I almost felt like this was a preface to something or that was proposing some other beginning that, that this had just been a, a kind of leading up to or something. This I just wondered, are, are we becoming any more enlightened than in Butler's time? You know, there's this, this sort of a comment on how Victorian society treated children, for example, I think. and it, it feels that, like it's, it's, it's left very open. But I think yeah. the, um, 
what's what's really interesting is that the a lot of illusions and things are left in a very open-ended way. It's not trying to tell us one thing. It's kind of a manifold uh, array of visual materials that we can respond to in different ways. And for example, in Butler's novel, he uses a lot of uh, word play, particularly in naming of characters or as in the place Erewhon. And then I think Gavin's being very, you know, he's manipulating images and the text and the editing and all kinds of historical references, but in a way that we don't necessarily necessarily have to nail them down, but we can sort of bring our own responses to it. And for that, I think it's also a, a film that will probably benefit repeat viewings because I watched it last night, I watched parts of it today, and then I just keep thinking about certain sections of it, which I am mm. prone to think, oh yes, I'd like to return to that. This week we're ticking off another New Zealand centre we call Hamilton, home to the excellent Ramp Gallery. Speaking to the curator, Kim Patton, about the Spark International Festival of Media Arts and Design, on the day no less before she's due to give birth. Kia ora, Kim. Kia ora. Hey, so tell us uh, about it. Tell us what, what Spark Festival is all about. Spark is a festival that Wintex School of Media Arts has been running for, uh, I think it's 17 years now, which is kind of a remarkable length of time. Yeah. And it's always about the second or third week of August every year, and it's essentially a reasonably broad week of kind of lectures, workshops and events that touch in some capacity the disciplines that are taught in the school, which mm. is moving image, fine art, design and music and photography. What were the highlights for you this year? Gabriella and Silvano Mangono, the twins from Australia, who yes. are moving image-based artists, came over to present, and they did a lecture and also a workshop. And I just, I just absolutely love their work, and any time I've ever seen it, I just kind of feel dumbstruck by it. I think everyone on staff has had that moment where someone they really, really admire internationally has come to the festival you know also the thing of them coming into Hamilton which is a place which again which is why I think Spark is so important is that Hamilton kind of gets left off the track of speaking circuits or fellows that are visiting or things like that which I think is a real shame and so Spark is really really important in that respect that all of a sudden for just this week we have all of these amazing people visiting and they were generous and lovely and kind of, were, you know, super interested in Hamilton and in New Zealand. But again, they just make resoundingly great work. So it was great to have them and hopefully we'll get them back at some point uh, yeah. at ramp. It's interesting. I wondered if that very fact about Spark is reflected in, in the range and the numbers of people coming. So I know Circuit showed a programme of short works based yep. around the cinema. 11am, my producer tells me, on a Monday morning, they had 150 people. Yeah, that's I mean, right. For artists, cinema, that's an amazing turnout. I mean, where, where are all those people coming from? I think that the, the kind of official stats are about 60% of people will be internal, like so generated from within media arts, and then the rest is public. Looking around at Mark's presentation, I, I, yeah, I would have said it would have been 50-50, which is really incredible. So they are just people from the community, from the public, from 
anywhere and everywhere that know about the festival and are making a decision to come to things. Yeah. The moving image department at Media Arts is really quite commercially focused, so it's not to be mistaken for moving image within a fine art context. So, so I think that even more that there's just a real general interest out there, so mm. it was great. Oh, it's great to hear about that crossover audience. Hey, mm. during Spark um, Ramp Gallery, which has got a really strong reputation, I think, in the visual arts around New Zealand, you presented an exhibition curated by Mark Harvey, yet another Mark, uh, with you, I think, entitled yep. What's the Hurry?, which the blurb says explores notions of time, speed, and the pace of human activity and behaviour. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. I really wanted to do a... I'm using the word survey very loosely, but I wanted to do a more comprehensive moving image-based show for RAMP, and a big part of that is, is thinking about what exposure we get to certain kinds of practices or artists or projects in Hamilton. And again, unfortunately, it feels like we miss out on a lot, particularly within the fine art department. There's very little in the way of students looking at moving image okay. or performance, so I was really keen to kind of have that uh, happening in the gallery, but also it came out of actually seeing Mark do his Productive Promises work at Teaser, which you curated. Yeah, the Learning Space Project, Christchurch, last year. And I kind of followed him around for a a full day in Christchurch. (laughs) And I think it kind of summed up for me a lot of what I find both elusive and also like totally compelling about performance whether it be live or, you know, video-based performance works, where there's that tension with how the artist interacts with the public. Yeah, I um, understand you had Mark, people had to push past Mark to get into the gallery at the opening as a performance. Yeah, yeah, so he did a, he did a performance at the opening called Welcome Rush, where he stood there kind of looking like he was about to go to his brother's wedding or perhaps meet you because he was your accountant. He was very, very nicely dressed. <laughs> but you, he greeted you and he greeted everyone with a generosity and a kindness. But then in order to gain entry into the gallery, you had to agree to push him over. And he really, there's something about the way he works where he is totally sincere in the way he comes across and yet he wants you to kind of do this preposterous thing with him. Hmm. And it's quite challenging, you know, and particularly for, for Ramp or for Hamilton audiences where there's very little live performance Watching Mark at Teaser had had really made me think about how performance is often about changing the way we look at these very, very simple actions, either through physicality or through what they mean in a, in a social environment. Yeah. With, you know, Productive Promises, he was looking at helping people cross the road or, and again with Welcome Rush, because it was that idea of meeting a stranger and gaining entry into a building. You know, these very, very small details that your attention gets re-honed to. Yeah. And I think all of the other works and what's the hurry, that is kind of a really key thing in the, in the work. They're taking this potentially banal or just everyday action that we would normally give no attention to whatsoever and they're asking that we re-look at it or pay closer attention. Hey, you've also got a publishing house there with Ramp Press, and you've just released the second edition of a very beautiful publication, Public Good. Yeah. It's got 30 responses to our built environment by artists, writers, and curators. So I wonder why this topic resonated in Hamilton. I don't know. I think think I've just been forcing it on Hamilton. It's been something I've 
been keen to try and keep grappling with until you feel like you get somewhere with it. I mean, I think it can resonate with anywhere, but I think that Hamilton is a really interesting setting for those ideas around the built environment and public spaces. And it's kind of those cliches about Hamilton, you know, that we start with, which is that everyone kind of trashes it a bit, other than the river, which the city is built looking away from. It doesn't have well-known buildings. It, you know, it, it's not famous for the way it looks or the way you interact with it. And then there's all of these civic challenges of a council that is, you know, in this constant state of trouble, really, and the relationship with the public is very fraught. And also we've seen this very, very decisive large-scale mall development on the peripheral suburbs of Hamilton, and Tainui's relationship to some of those main developments are really interesting. Uh. And none of that is, is new. I mean, that city drain is, has occurred you know, in different ways and probably everywhere in New Zealand. But I do particularly think that the cultural cringe around Hamilton's perception means that it is talked about with less productivity than I've heard it talked about in other cities. Well, that was, my next question was going to ask what, what wider Hamilton and Ramp offer that's distinct from Auckland, but you're sort of answering that question, which is you know, somewhere maybe in the cracks and between the pavings there's, there's some quite interesting things happening. Yeah, and the other thing is that you know, I think it suffers from being a city of a certain size close to New Zealand's largest city by a long shot. That proximate relationship means that you can use the big city for a certain amount of things, but there's also this place where you reside. I think it creates really intriguing issues for the smaller city in terms of how it kind of defines itself. And also I think Hamilton's legacy is centre for farming. And all of also all of those towns in the Waikato that feed into the city, they set the foundation or the tone for the place, which is... I guess trying to figure out how to how to shift or change well, the way it yeah, wants to. An interesting role for artists then. Yeah, hey, absolutely. Hey, finally, Kim, just on your next exhibition at Ramp is is also a site responsive work, and I think in some ways relating relating to the changes in the urban environment. It's called Assault on Art Precinct 13, and is a a, 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 a drawing process led exhibition. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that is um, being led by Mark Bornius, who is a painter who's actually doing a little bit of teaching at Wintech, which is fantastic. He is working with a group of four what you would call emerging artists who are all recent graduates of art school. And their relationship within the project is that Mark, I think, acts as this conduit or coerces outcomes in a productive way out of these kind of younger, newer artists. But interestingly, uh, Craig McClure, who's one of the four artists, has been running this artist-run space called Drawrink ah, yes. in Hamilton for about three years. When they started up, there had been no artist-run space since Platform. They have worked really, really hard to try and find viability, as all artist-run spaces do, they had had some quite good relationships with landlords and they were operating in a multiple spaces kind of way, you know, using free spaces as they came up. But it all kind of came to a head where they lost every space that they had uh, earlier this year. All of those spaces that they had were operating in this 
the south end of town which had fallen victim to the suburban mall development and it was full of empty shops but we were starting to see this gentrification of those spaces back again and Draw Inc was one of the places that spearheaded energy and activity back into these buildings but yes. now we're starting to see the tenants come back in. Which the old is, gentrification. Yeah, 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 the old cycle arts. kicking in and, and media arts too, they due to earthquake condemned buildings, they had to, we've moved our entire painting and sculpture building just a few doors down from where Draw Rink was. So you can see all these things that might be starting to put pressure on the rents again. And I think you know, Mark Vaughanius was really interested to, I think as well, to kind of observe this from a distance. Here was this area that, you know, people were organically engaging with the space in the way that they wanted to, to just get good stuff off the ground. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the local council wants to rename the area the cultural precinct. <laughs> and Media Arts, you know, Wintech starts producing banners with that written on it, and you just kind of feel your stomach sink. <laughs> so the show is, I think, meant to be this view into that process in a satirical or critical way, which I think is great. And in a nice play on that, drawing is essentially coming in and, taking over ramp for the period of that show. I think they're planning to put their signage over the top of ours, <laughs> which, I, which I love, you know, that, that idea that they're trying to fight back or something. And that's CircuitCast for another month. This pod was brought to you by circuit.org.nz with the assistance of Creative New Zealand and with music by Orchestra Spheres. We're back with some more Jabber next month. Talk to you then.